You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Let me say good morning and glad you're here today. And my name is Mark and I'm one of the leaders here at the White House campus, and if you're a guest with us today, we want you to know how glad we are that you're here, but we believe this, that you are not here by accident, that whatever you thought might have brought you here, that you saw this church on, found their website, or you saw a, a sign, or someone invited you, that you are not here by accident, that we believe that before the foundations of the world God knew who would be here this day, and this is what we do as Bethel. We come each and every Sunday, and we're going to open His Word and see what it says with great anticipation that God will speak to us this morning. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to go to Ephesians chapter 2, and it's a little unorthodox for us. We typically don't just jump into a book, and Uh, We typically like to walk through a book, and we'll be doing that soon enough. If you want to start reading ahead, the Gospel of John is coming up. I'm not going to tell you how long it'll take us to get through us, uh, but go ahead and start reading that. But we've been taking August to look at one word, and that word is pursue. Last week we saw God's pursuit of us, and today we're going to look at how do we pursue an identity that only God can give us. So you're going to look to Ephesians chapter 2 this morning. I'll begin this way. Have you, I was thinking, I'll tell you why in just a moment, because we're about on a one-year anniversary, but have you ever found yourself just in a situation or in a time where you felt you were completely beyond help or hope? Man, there's something happening and you're just beyond any help. I said that because we are about to enter into the one-year anniversary of Hurricane Harvey. It's hard to believe it's almost been a year where this storm dropped over 50 inches of rain. In fact, the experts that measure all this stuff said that it dropped 34 trillion gallons in just a number of days. That you could take the New Orleans Astrodome and fill it 26,000 times. And that's the amount of rain that felt says it's done $125 billion in damage. I imagine there had to be people that found themselves completely helpless, uh, without hope of saving their property or even their own lives. If you turn on the news, you'll even see it out in California where as of Friday, 13 fires were burning. Over 80,000 acres. Just imagine what it might be like. They said 16,000 homes gone. Many people are sitting there even today watching these fires come across the landscape wondering, is our house next? Or just the other day, it seems like, you remember the young soccer team that went exploring in a dark cave and found themselves stuck for nine days without water and food. Completely hopeless. Said they were drinking water that dripped from the ceiling of this cave, wondering, do they even know we're here? There's so many situations like that that you find yourself that in an utterly helpless situation. There's nothing you can do to change your situation. But then all of a sudden, hope arrives. 
Imagine people stranded on the roofs and what it must have been like when those floods were happening to hear the, the wind of the helicopter coming or finally seeing a rescuer pull up in a boat to bring you to safety or those wildfires. I've read of stories where they're watching it happen knowing it's just a matter of minutes and all of a sudden the wind changes and the fire begins moving in a completely different direction. I reread the story of these young boys in this cave. Floodwaters come in, there's no way of getting out, and all of a sudden they see the water begin to bubble, and they were terrified. But to finally see that Navy SEAL break the surface of that water, knowing help has arrived. I can't imagine what it was like for these people to be in just completely hopeless situations, and then all of a sudden there is hope. The great thing is today we get to see this picture and it is going to come and it will show up in two words. So we're going to go to Ephesians and Ephesians is a book that's set up around two major themes. It's all about Jesus reconciling all of creation to himself. And then it is about God taking a hodgepodge group of people and creating a beautiful thing called the church. And Ephesians chapter 1 begins, and it's all about what Christ has done. It's a great chapter. It talks about that believers have been enriched in every spiritual blessing, that he chooses you, makes you holy, adopts you, gives you wisdom, unites all things under him. But chapter 2 begins with a picture of a dark and helpless picture. And it's going to be three verses that we have to walk through that is going to paint a picture of just how hopeless our situation is. So let's read it. Beginning in verse 1, chapter 2 of Ephesians. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once walked and lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And that's not a hopeful picture. It's bleak and it is dark. And so I want us to break this down to see what Paul is saying. Look at how he begins in verse 1. He says, And you were dead. This is where everyone begins. And Paul is not describing a physical death because the people are sitting there. They're opening up Paul's letter. They're reading it. They're breathing air. But he says that you are dead. And he's talking about a spiritual death. So what does he mean? What does it mean to be spiritually dead? Well, it can mean a lot of things. One, it means that you don't know and you don't care about spiritual things. You can't. It means that you are more interested in everything else being truthful and finding your sources there. You're not concerned with God's truth. You find truth in newspapers or television or talk show radio that that is where we're looking. That's where we're more interested. You have no strength to live out spiritual truths. It's better to give to receive, to love your wife as Christ loved the church, to love your neighbor as yourself. You can't do it. It means you're unable to respond to God. No communication with Him. 
He doesn't hear you, and He doesn't listen to you. You're separated from Him. And you can do nothing that would ever please Him. And Paul says you are dead. So you want to know what the word dead in Greek means? It means dead. I mean, that's Paul speaking plainly. You are dead. But notice he doesn't say you're sick. He doesn't say we're just sick and need some medicine. He says you are dead. So why would Paul use such a graphic word to describe us? It's because he wants us to see how hopeless we really are. Because what can a dead person do? Think about it. What, if you are dead, what can you do to change your situation? It's nothing. In fact, you're not even aware of the things going on around you. You're completely unresponsive. You are helpless. We're not just sick and in need of some medicine. In fact, we don't even just need to be resuscitated. A dead person is totally beyond helping themselves. And that's the picture that Paul wants us to see here. Notice what we're dead in. Why the reason this is. He says, in trespasses and sins. And he uses two different words to kind of describe really the same thing. But they have very different ways of getting there. They both end up in the same place. The word trespasses means to like fall in a pit. You might not uh, intend on ending up in the pit. You're walking along. You still end up in the pit. But you really might not intended to get there. But then sin is an intentional disobedience or rebellion. So both of them end up in the same place. They're both sins against a holy God. One you might not mean to get there. But other is you sought that out. But notice the only thing that a dead person spiritually is capable of, and he tells us in the following verses. Really three things. Following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So following means that you are being mastered or you're being controlled by something else. As soon as I read that, I thought about tank. You've never met Tank. In fact, Tank was a bull. Biggest thing as an eight-year-old kid had ever seen. Tank was massive. It was a friend of mine, and that was one of their bulls, and I remember just hearing stories about Tank. I was so afraid. I didn't want to be in the pasture if he was there. I'd heard stories about him running into trucks, uh, breaking uh, fence posts, but my neighbor knew that I was really afraid of Tank. So Tank was this massive... One with the big humps, I think you call them Brimmer Bulls. And he had this huge ring in his nose. The guy went out, our neighbor, and he took this rope with a clip and he hooked it into Tank's nose ring. And he had me come on the other side of the gate and he handed me this rope. And I'm telling you, I'm terrified. I can't believe my parents are going to let me be trampled to death by this bull. And they're okay with that. But he gave me the rope and he said, I want you to walk down to the other gate. And that bull just followed me. And this is the word that he has here, that you're being mastered, that that bull had all the power in the world to run over me, but when I was clipped into that nose ring, he would follow me and I could control him. 
And this is a picture he's given that you are controlled. And look at the first one. You're being mastered by the course of the world. So what does that mean? It means that there's this philosophy that is happening around us with a set of values and, and certain lifestyles that are going on around us. And that we can easily be mastered by it. In fact, the world, the, the system that's controlling that, in fact, we're told in Romans 12 to be careful, do not be conformed to the world. And that's what it's talking about, this philosophy about seeing life. It says if you're not careful, you're going to follow and you're going to trespass, you're going to fall into that trap and it will happen slowly. So I began thinking about what is the things in our days. Just realize for a minute that I want to be real careful here that I know that these things touch us in a lot of different ways. What happens is we can slowly begin getting numb to what is really truthful. It happens slowly. We, we, we start being exposed to it, and then before long, we really don't think it's that big of a deal. We go, well, there's things that are much worse. Things like same-sex marriage. Sex outside the commitment of marriage. I mean, you can't hardly turn on the TV now with being slowly being conformed to, okay, it's really not that bad. Materialism, racism. You know what the Bible tells us where these things, where these philosophies come from? They come from the pits of hell. And they are coming to control and to conform us to believe and then to live that way. But it's more than just the world. He says following, being led by, mastered, controlled by the prince of the power of the air. And that has a direct reference to Satan. It being mastered and controlled by what the world says, but even Satan himself. And notice he says prince of the air. I think that's a description of what does that mean, that, that air is really everywhere. It's all around you. You can never escape it. It's a space between where your feet stand and the highest of the heavens. And he is able to live and to be controlling within that. And it is all around us. You can never escape it. So the prince of the power of the air, the world, and he says that we are dead. We, we follow these things. We follow this mindset, this person, and we do it as sons of disobedience. But notice that these factors are not the only ones you have to worry about. Those factors are those that we have to be careful from the outside. Satan, the, the world that is around us, the system that is trying to sway us. But there's another enemy. In fact, I think it's more powerful than the others. Look at verse 3. Among whom we all, me included, you included, once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and whereby nature children of wrath. Not only are you a son of disobedience, you're a child of wrath like the rest of of mankind. So once again, three things, the passions of the flesh, desires of the body, desires of the mind. You know where that evil comes from? Right within you. You don't have to go anywhere. It lives right within us all. And the reason we do these things, that we follow the flesh, the passions, desires of our minds and bodies, why do we do that? Paul says it's because it's your nature. You know why a dog barks? Because it's a dog. I mean, that, that's what it does. It's by its very nature, that's what it does. 
So by nature, this is who we are. This is our identity. Our actions do not determine your identity. Because you can try to bark all day long and it still will not make you a dog. But our identity drives our actions. And Paul says, you can't get away from it. There is nothing you can do to change your nature. Go and try. You can't do it. You cannot change your nature. First of all, remember you're dead. But second of all, it's something you can't change. You can try putting on certain clothes. You can try talking a certain way, going a certain place. You can't change your nature. So Paul is showing just how desperate and hopeless our situation is. We're controlled by the forces of evil outside us, but even by the forces within our own nature. We're sons of disobedience, children of wrath, that we are spiritually dead, and there is nothing we can do to help our situation. We're not just sick, we're dead. You can't decide to get up out of the grave. You can't even decide to say, you know, I'm going to start living spiritually. You can't decide that. You are hopeless to fix yourself. And that's what Paul says, and that's what he wants us to know. And this is to make us feel completely beyond hope. Because then when you read the next two words, it should cause us to leap with joy. You're dead by nature, children of wrath, sons of disobedience. You can't do anything to help yourself. You are stuck. But God, that no matter how hopeless or helpless the situation is, but God. So I want you to write those words somewhere because I want to show you how that can be important for what might happen even tomorrow. But let's look at what God does. But God, being rich in mercy, meaning He has this abundance And this mercy, it means an undeserved kindness or compassion. Meaning God's pockets are deep. And because of the great love with which he loved us. And it's that word agape. Which means God is always seeking the highest good for someone. That's what that means. It means to search and to seek the highest good possible. Meaning God's desire for you and for me is that He will only do what is best for you. What is most loving. Allow that to sink in for just a moment. That God's desire, and God always does what He desires, is to do the thing that is most loving for you. Meaning that God will not allow what is not best for you. And I know what's happening in your mind. You're thinking about all the things. You go, whoa, whoa, whoa. Do you really know what has just happened? And no, I don't. But I know that God will only allow what is best for you. It will not always feel good, but He will only allow what is best and most loving. It won't always feel that way. But we can know that what is happening in our lives, first of all, passes through God's will. And he can only do what is best for you. And that means when you get that letter in the mail and you open it up and your child just gets into their favorite college with a full ride. You go, wow, that's love. But it's also when you have to plan the funeral for that family member that dies way too young. That both are love. We won't always understand it. We will not always feel right. 
But love is God's nature. And it's what God is doing no matter what he's doing. He is always doing what is best and most loving. So because God has abundant mercy, because his love knows no bounds, and he is seeking your highest good, look at what he does to your dead, decaying body. In verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, hopeless, helpless, lifeless, able to do nothing to save yourself, makes us alive together with Jesus. He makes you alive. You're not just sick and need of some medicine. You are dead and God makes you alive. So the only way you can ever communicate with God the only way you can ever appreciate spiritual things or live out spiritual truths, the only way you can do anything that honors and pleases Him is you must first be made alive. I can't tell you the things that I've thought about this week that, man, I can't tell myself. I can't make myself just get up and go do. I can't make myself get out of the grave. But then notice what Paul does. Your Bible, this next phrase, yours probably either has parentheses or hyphens. And what that means is that Paul is writing, and all of a sudden he just breaks all grammar structure to say one thing. And the strange thing is he's going to say it again in verse 8, but he's coming along and he just all of a sudden stops and he says this. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive in Christ. Pause. By grace you were saved. Now back to my point. So why would Paul do that? Right in the middle of all this, about going from the blackest, the darkest, the most helpless situation, to but God made you alive, and he implants this in here. I think it's to make sure that we know that being bought from back from dead to life and being made alive is not of your own doing. It is only by grace. Paul wants to make sure we realize that we cannot make ourselves come to life. You can't do it. And grace is not God's response to your actions. Let me explain what I mean by that. It's in verse 6. So God's desire is to make you alive. But he does even more than that. In verse 6, he makes you alive when you're dead and without help, without hope. And he raises us up with him. The God raises us up and he gives you new life. Not just a better or a more improved life, a new life. Meaning you're given a new set of values, new priorities. And the same power that God used to raise Jesus, who had been laid in that grave for three days, the same power it took to raise him back to life, is the same power that it takes to bring you and me to faith. But God in fashion, only he can. It's like God can't help himself but to do more for you. He makes you alive. He raises you up. And then look, he seats you with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Not only does he make you alive, raises you up, he seats you with Christ. That you were dead in your sin, unable to do anything to improve where you were, to change your hopelessness. But... Because he is merciful, because he is gracious, he makes you alive, but there's more. He seats you in the heavenly places. And here's the beauty of this phrase. It means that God considers you worthy 
to sit in a place of honor alongside his son. That he says that it means that we get to share with Christ and his rule as king. That God takes you from being six feet under all the way to heaven. That you go from being forever dead to forever alive. And he does it by placing you in a place of honor. But you have to be asking, I mean, what does God get from this? Why, why would God do all of this for a people that are sons of disobedience, children of wrath? What does God get? So Paul tells us in verse 7. So that in the coming ages, and it's talking about the ages, meaning eternity to come, that he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards Christ Jesus. He does it to put his glory on display. God wants the world for all eternity to see this, to see his abundant mercy, to, to see his love on display. You know what? It will take us in eternity to discover it. Meaning each and every day, if, if eternity is going to have days like that, that each and every day you're going to think, you know what? I could never see beyond more love than I've already seen. And each day brings a greater depth to who God really is. Well, then we get probably the most two familiar verses in the Bible. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And I hope these verses now have a much richer meaning, seeing them in context. And this, you need to mark that because I'm going to explain what I meant a little bit earlier. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. It cannot be clear that we are saved Brought to life, and what does it say? By grace. But grace is not God's response to your efforts and your actions. We're not saved by saying some prayer. You're not saved by walking some aisle. You're not saved by any action. You're saved by grace. And the basis of this salvation is grace. And what does it say? By grace through faith. But don't be misled. Faith is not a work. Faith is not something that you can I could go and do. You're dead. We're unable to respond. A dead person can't cause themselves to get up and walk and to have faith. A dead person can't do that. So what does God do? God hands us salvation. We do nothing but stick out our hands and accept that gift. That's faith. That faith is accepting what God has done. That faith is giving up being able to provide what we need and letting God give us what only He can provide. So we err in thinking that faith is what I do, and I'll get to a place, and then God's going to meet me eventually halfway. Because in this phrase, notice what it says. It says, and this is not of your own doing. We like to think of grace. Okay, I understand that. that Grace isn't what I do, but then the faith must be my part. But this is describing the whole process of salvation. That it's by grace, through faith. So what is this describing? Both of them. You don't earn your salvation. Even the faith to believe is given to us. And I know what you're thinking, what do I do? I'm about to tell us. So salvation is a gift, not a reward. 
Salvation is not something we obtain by doing. It's something that you receive by believing. So why is this salvation not based on works? In verse 9 he says, Not as a result of works, so that no one could boast. We can't bring salvation to ourselves. Salvation is brought to us by what Christ did. So God doesn't set up salvation based on what we can do. And he does that so you and I can't take credit. Because think about it. If it was up to us, we would spend all eternity worshiping ourselves. It would be our glory that was on display. The only thing that we could ever boast in, you want if Galatians 6 tells us, you boast in the cross. So if I'm ever able to stand before Jesus, the only thing I can do is say it's because of you. Notice in verse 10. So what do we do? We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. You're thinking, finally, something I get to do in this thing. But notice, be careful. Workmanship means creation. It's, it's like a person that is painting or, or crafting a, a work of art. So first of all, you are his workmanship. You're his masterpiece. You're his creation. Before you ever do any work, he's doing a work in you. So we're his masterpiece because you're in Christ, not because of your works. And once again, notice, it starts with God. So the works that you do, okay, what do I do? The works, it says, you're his workmanship first, but which God prepared beforehand. Meaning even the works that you think are good that you do, God's like, "Mm, that was me. I brought that to you. Thinking about the teaching that went on this morning in our classes. So thankful for those that step in and teach from our youngest to oldest. You know, that's a work God presented. Life group's about to kick off. I know one group got together yesterday. I heard it was a great time. A lot of planning. Everything went into that. But you know what? God said, here's a work I need you to do. Last week, we gathered at the Peaks house. That was God saying, here's a work, church. Go and do this. Walk in this. Helping your neighbor. God is setting up works all the time. He has prepared these works that we are to do. But then he says, and we should walk in them. So once we're made spiritually alive, God prepares us. He brings us works to bring him honor and glory. So I think another way of saying this is this. Is it saying that we are not saved by faith plus good works? I hope we understand that. But we are saved so that we can do good works. You know, today's passage, it shows us that we were spiritually dead and deserving of God's wrath. That is how bleak and hopeless our situation was. But God. Salvation is brought to us by grace through faith. We're His workmanship. You're His masterpiece. He calls you, equips you, and then guides you to walk in the works that honor and please him. So how does this help us about pursuing an identity? One I would simply ask is, what is your identity or what nature do you have? Are you still dead in your trespasses, in your sins, incapable of doing anything that could be called remotely good that would please God? So here's what you do. You ask God to give you the faith to believe. And you know what the scriptures tell us? God will do that every single time. 
Faith isn't something that you go and do. You ask God to give it and you believe. But then life begins. And God can then take your life. He'll seat you in the heavenly places along with his son. And then there will be a life that you would have no idea about how things can change. But then I think also, you say, okay, well, I've done that. I've responded in faith. Well, I think you can even use this passage to fight against the old nature. You know, that old nature is still alive, still kicking. Martin Luther said, you know, when I was baptized, man, that old man, I thought it was going to drown him, but I realized he can still swim. Our old nature is still fighting against the new. So when that old nature is trying to take control, you fight back with those two words. When you find yourself being tempted to click on that website, find yourself being tempted into selfishness or materialism or racism, when that old nature of anger begins popping its head up, you say to that old nature, but God. And you remind yourself what God has done for you. That's no longer me. I no longer have to be controlled by that old nature. I am in Christ. But then I would say pursue the works that God establishes for you. That God prepares us for these good works. That each and every day we wake up going, okay, God, what works are you going to bring to me today? So I started doing that this week. Waking up, okay, God, I like to plan. I like my to-do list. I like my calendar well neat. So when something happens... It's like everything else gets thrown away and I see everything as an interruption. I got a call and somebody said, hey, can you help out? And I thought, there's a work. God is asking me to walk in this and to be able to bless someone like that. We get up each and every day going, God, what works are you going to bring to me? Help me to walk in them. But then the last thing I think this scripture tells us is pursue life, pursue your identity where everything is a gift. Because we can easily get into this mindset that we deserve more than we have. What a difference it would make to see that all of life is a gift and more than we deserve. Then means that no matter what goes on in my life or your life this next week, we say, Lord, you know what's best. You can only do what is most loving to me. I don't deserve as much that I have. And you see, everything is a gift. So I think that's how we pursue an identity or a nature that we're called to. So today I think we've seen two of the most beautiful and powerful words, but God. That we needed His miraculous power, His resurrection power to break the influences of the world, to break and defeat the prince of the air, to overcome the passions of our flesh, to give us new desires that we then can honor him, a new nature. So what I see God doing is he takes your grave clothes and he clothes you with grace clothes. So this morning I hope and I pray that you know that life-giving grace of salvation. And if you don't, ask God to give you the faith to believe. But if you do, remember how Christ has worked for you. Now let him work in you and then through you this week. So what I'd like to do is pray for us. Because listen, we can't do this on our own. We were dead. We need him each and every day. So that we would pray asking for the help to even apply this. 
Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.